seated. God willing, in just a few weeks, there's a couple of couples that we know well in this church who will exchange wedding vows. Martin and Rachel, Wes and Brittany, will covenant to live as man and wife until parted by death. Now, when a young couple enters such a covenant, there are significant entailments, necessary consequences which follow. Marriage is just one of a number of relationships that we enter in this world, which include future implications and responsibilities. We understand this without really even thinking about it. This is our world. You may sign a lease. There's entailments. There's responsibilities that follow. You may enter into a business agreement, or you may matriculate at a school of higher learning. You might earn a driver's license or take a job. There are entailments. There are necessary consequences that result from and are organic to such experiences. I wonder, are we fully aware that the new birth has entailments? When we are born again, when we are saved from God's wrath by trusting in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, there are consequences and responsibilities which naturally follow. If God has begotten you anew, as we read in 1 Peter 1, if you've been saved from His wrath by Jesus' death and resurrection, If you are an heir of heaven by God's gracious provision and protection, if you have been given a supernatural love for Jesus, there are entailments. There are necessary consequences to this string of gracious realities. And this is why, I invite you to turn back to 1 Peter 1, this is why verse 13 starts with the word therefore. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, therefore... In light of our glorious salvation, Peter presents now three implications, three necessary consequences of our response to God in salvation. These moral responsibilities are based on what God has already done. They are rooted in His saving grace alone. But as we truly grasp what God has done in saving us, Peter argues that there are three responses necessary. So all of this emphasis on the glorious salvation that we have in Christ comes now at verse 13 to the therefore. We learn first of all, by way of call upon our lives, that we are to set our hope on the grace of Jesus' coming. Therefore, here's implication one, set your hope on the grace that will come with Christ. Looking at verse 13, overall, if you want to even just mark down in your Bible, set your hope. That's the controlling imperative. Set your hope. Place your hope. Everything else in the verse supports and qualifies this command. So the idea is if we grasp the glories of our salvation, if we really get what God has done... We will live with our focus set on Jesus' return. 
This is one of the entailments. One, and let me say at the beginning, I'm using the word entailment in the most positive sense. Sometimes it's used in the negative sense of add-ons that you really don't want to deal with. Here it's in the most positive sense of consequences that follow. One of those consequences is we will set our hope on the grace that is coming in Christ. Now, as we know in the Bible, the word hope is not a wishful dream, but it is a confident expectation based on God's promises. It is a confident expectation based on what God has said He will do. Now, think of this. Moving past what we know, what we are quick to dismiss, think on this. Someday in the future, our Savior whom we love will be revealed and vindicated. Someday this one who died to ransom our soul will come again. And someday every knee will bow to Him. That's not happening right now. There are many who revile His name. Many who hate Christ. Many who are living a life even ignorant of Him that is lived in hatred of Christ. But there is a day coming when grace will be showered upon us when Christ is revealed. On that day, everything will be set straight. Our joy will be complete. Our faith vindicated. And righteousness will reign. We've already received immense grace in our salvation. Yet more grace will be poured out in overwhelming supply when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is the promise of our Father. And this is an implication of our salvation. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's pray for one another. Let's pray for one another as a church. Let's encourage one another to set our hope on this coming reality. Now there's weird ways of doing that. I'm not suggesting that, but let's, let's do that in our conversations and in our prayers for one another. What do I pray about on Wednesday night when I gather with the church to pray? Here's one thing to pray. That we would set our hope on the grace that is to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the right orientation. Now let's take the two participles here that support this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. This these participles are ways in which we set our hope on Christ's return, or at least projects that accompany such a hope. Preparing your minds for action. The Greek reads, and you see there in the margin, uh, in the footnote, girding up the loins of your mind. That doesn't work very well for us as English readers, particularly today, but in that day, the standard dress was a sleeveless t-shirt that went really, really long. Essentially, it was made of linen, it was fairly thick and, and heavy, but it was basically just a sleeveless t-shirt that went below the knees as far as to the ankles, depending on the day and what you were doing and what you owned. But if you have that long flowing robe hanging over your knees and you want to work or you want to run, that becomes a liability. And so you just hike up the hem as far as you choose above your knees and tuck in the excess into your belt. That's girding your loins. That's freeing up your legs to be free to work, to run, or whatever. So the idea here is that we would free up our minds to actively concentrate our attention upon the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's admit the obvious. 
Our world promotes philosophies and activities, and everywhere around us there are concerns that pull our attention away from any focus on the return of Christ. We live in a world which says, yeah, go ahead and believe in Santa Claus if you wish. Everywhere around us are people saying those kinds of things. This is a ridiculous dream, pie-in-the-sky kind of thing. We're going to need to pull up our robe, to tuck it in our belt, and to work actively to think about the coming of Christ. To have a future orientation in our lives. We need to discipline our minds. That's what he is saying. Gird up the loins of your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. That doesn't come naturally for me. To discipline my mind to think about the things that I ought to think about. And so in the return of Christ, I'm old enough, I guess, I've learned a few strategies along the way. And let's share others with one another as we break today from this place. One of the ways that, that I, it helps me trigger my mind to continue to think about the return of Christ is whenever I see something in the skies that is awesome, I try to stop and think of the return of Christ as well. Just connect it in my mind. So I see a cloud formation, or lightning, or stars, or a glorious sunset. As I'm looking up to the sky, it's a natural thought, maybe perhaps if we discipline our minds, to think then also about the return of Christ. We have little fake candles that burn in a window above our entryway, our vaulted entryway. And I've seen that light as keeping a light on for the return of Christ, so to speak. Just a, just a strange little thing, but as I see that light, and I forget about it, and then the batteries run out, and I don't think about it for three months until we get it fixed because it's too high to reach without a ladder. But just that light burning reminds me Christ is coming back. There's a glorious revelation that more grace will be showered upon my life when Christ returns. I long for that day. I love him. I want to see him. Remember Peter saying that we haven't seen him, but we love him. Well, someday we're going to love him and see him. And that candle burning there just reminds me of that. I've got to structure my mind to think this way obviously Bible reading. If we read the Bible regularly, there is numerous references to the return of Christ. Don't gloss over them. Think about that. In our memory passages, there are often evidences of the return of Christ. And learn to pray, by concentration, learn to pray this prayer, come Lord Jesus. That's where the, book, where the Bible ends, where the book of Revelation ends. Come Lord Jesus. Jesus promises there that I will come soon. It's on his timetable, not ours, obviously, but I will come soon. And John prays, come, Lord Jesus. Do you pray that prayer? Is it part of your prayer life? Just pray, come, Lord Jesus. Preparing our minds for action or girding up the loins of our minds, thinking about the return of Christ is how we set our hope on him. Secondly, the qualifier, being sober-minded. That doesn't mean be sour and humorless. It's a reference to self-controlled clarity of mind rooted in God's counsel and founded on His promises. Shriner says there is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. We know what he means. 
We are all bent towards spiritual drowsiness and moral lethargy. We need to be clear-minded, concentrated on the promises of God, to learn to speak the right messages to our minds, to learn to stifle emotions that question the wisdom and the promises of God. And grace will be brought to you, Peter says, a final completion of our salvation in Christ's presence at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is when He reigns visibly and noticeably all. He reigns now. He is the victor now. He has defeated death now, but there is a day when He will be revealed to all. Set your hope on that day. And think of what He's saying subtly to these Christians who are being persecuted. Don't set your affections on how you're treated by others. Set your hope on the ultimate vindication of the return of Christ when grace will be poured upon you. Set your hope on that. Peter is not promoting here some mystical mind game intended to dull our senses to the suffering of this life so we can pretend away reality. When he says be sober-minded, what he's saying is set your mind on reality. The problem is, as we set our mind on all kinds of things that are passing and fleeting and worthless, set your mind on reality. Jesus is coming again. He will be revealed. More grace will be poured out upon you. Set your eyes on that goal. Think clearly. Order your mind to think that way. The few who've had farming experience among us know how to plow a field, right, Jerry? Come up, give us a lecture on this, but uh, you've you got to plow them straight. I mean, it gets really ugly if they start getting plowed crooked. So how do you plow a straight field? You don't just, you don't get a GPS out or anything like that. You just look across the field, and you set your eye on somewhere across. Maybe you're, you're mowing a grass, a large field, and you, got, you want it to look nice and straight. How do you do that? You've got to set your eye across the field to where you're going and to set a straight line and not to deviate from it by looking at the end. Now, if a deer runs in front of you, you'll see it, right? You, you, your eye will pick that up and you'll, you'll slow down or a gopher runs in front of it and you'll speed up or whatever, but you'll, you'll, you see the end, that's where your concentration, it doesn't mean you don't see anything else, but you see it in a secondary way. And you plow the straight road. That's how, what our life is to look like. We're focused on the goal that is ahead. We set our hope on the return of Jesus Christ. We see everything else. But that's where our focus is centered. If you have been born again, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, one of the beautiful entailments is that you will live this life with your sights set on Christ coming again to rule in power and glory. He reigns now, but this will be revealed to all someday. That's where I set my hope. The second imperative that we find here in verses 14 and following is conform your conduct to the holiness of God. Set your hope on the grace of Jesus coming. Conform your conduct to the holiness of God. Verse 14 is qualifying. The central command here is found in verse 15, to be holy. As obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
There's the primary command to be holy. Verse 14 sets us up with the negative statement. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We know what that means. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for him is seen by obedience to him. And there are former passions There are cravings and desires that are connected to the old life that we turn away from in obedience to Christ. As God's children, we want to walk in obedience. Obedience is the opposite of allowing ourselves to be conformed to these former passions. The days before our salvation, when our lives were molded to desires like greed and lust and laziness, and peer pressure, and materialism, and self-vindication, and self-exalting pride by evil deeds, and attitudes, and goals. That's our former ignorance. That's lost in the dark. Don't calibrate your life to those things, but rather, verse 15, as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. There's our second controlling imperative, to be holy. Set your hope on this grace to come, Live a holy life. Live a life of distinctiveness. Because, as verse 16 says, it is written, it stands written in Scripture, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our Father is holy. He is morally distinct. God does not conform to the ignorance and depravity of our world's philosophies and practices. He is distinct from it all. And it is this God who calls us His children. He calls us, I think speaks of the effectual calling of God, not simply an invitation, but a call like in the physical realm Lazarus received when Jesus said, get up. He's like, I'm hearing this. I was was dead, but I'm alive. This is the effectual call of Christ in a physical sense. Spiritually, it's the same idea here. He has called us to be His own. Since God is now our Father, this One who has called us is our Father, our delight is to take on His character and to emulate His holiness. In fact, our every ethical responsibility is a direct response to the nature of God. Think on that. Our every ethical responsibility is a direct response to the nature of God. That's why verse 16 says, as he who's called you is holy. He is holy, so we are to be holy. Imitating not the world, but our Father. We're to be holy, not just on the Lord's day, but in all of our conduct. Be holy in everything you do. So hunters... Hockey fans, quilters and crafters, musicians and cooks and video game junkies and junk food enthusiasts. I had to put myself in there somewhere. Whether it's at home, in school, on the job, in the community, we need to talk to one another what does holiness look like in this situation? I don't think holiness looks like for a hunter as there's a deer crossing his path and he's in his deer stand, he gets down on his knees and prays. No, he shoots. But what does holiness look like? How does it play out in the give and take of life? How do we look at a life that is wholly distinctive unto God? Let's talk within those circles. Understand 
as we talk with one another, how others apply it, how we can be real people living in a real world who have our sights set on the return of Christ and holiness as our conduct code. Holiness of life does not mean we become cultural hermits or walking museum pieces on display for the world to smirk at. And it certainly does not mean that we live in a manner that is indistinguishable from the world and the culture around us. Every endeavor is to be infused with an orientation to holiness. I have to say again, to some people that sounds like an orientation to weirdness. There is a beauty to the distinctiveness of God. His holiness is beautiful. It's not just weird to be weird. There are things our world values, watches, listens to. There are places they go, attitudes they express, goals they embrace, ideas they trust, from which we must separate ourselves in a beautiful way. Now there's a lot of debate on what that means and what it should look like in the context of our day. And there isn't a body sitting here or standing here in this room that has it all figured out. But let's pray together for one another's holiness. As we prayed through this book on Friday and Saturday night, we had that opportunity to do exactly this, to pray for one another's holiness. In our prayer project this Friday and Saturday, let's take this further and continue to pray for one another's holiness, that it looks the way God wants it to look, that it distinctly reflects His nature and His character in the midst of this world in which we live. Let's talk together about how to pursue holiness in our lives. Set your hope on the grace of Jesus' return. Conform your conduct to the holiness of God. And thirdly, live your life in the reverence of God. That's the major theme at verse 17 and following. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. That word fear is our third controlling imperative. Hope, holiness, fear. Conduct yourself, or we might translate it with reverent fear throughout the time of your exile. Our Heavenly Father, the one we invoke in prayer, is also, we learn here, our final judge. The Father who judges impartially. He is a judge who plays no favorites and He cuts no corners. Now let's understand. We may not all agree that uh, are here with us today, but I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus has paid the full penalty of our sin. He didn't do half a job. And that's not a job that we have to continue to complete. Jesus paid the full price of our redemption. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. His death is fully sufficient sacrifice to cleanse us from sin. Not to say that sin is gone doesn't apply to every individual in this world, not saying any of that, but saying that His death is fully sufficient for our salvation. So, I think you're wrong. If you have in your mind this picture of God is my judge, you go and you stand before God, and He looks over your good deeds, and He looks over your bad deeds, 
And he has this pair of glasses that are kind of riding way down low on his nose, and he looks over the glasses and stares at you for a long, long time. And it says, I'm not happy with everything I see here, but I guess I'll let you in. That's an evil picture. Cancel that out of your head. That is not the idea of God as judge that Scripture encourages. You want to know the severity of God. It's not, I think I'll let you by. The severity of God is pictured in Jesus Christ hanging on a cross and dying. Jesus didn't sweep anything, God didn't sweep anything under the carpet. He gave his son to die. But when he died, he paid the full price of our sin. It's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, major point of the book of Hebrews. He died to pay the full penalty of our sin. Our good deeds could never merit salvation. We don't understand the justice of God if we think so. Jesus' death is the fully sufficient payment for our sins. But here is the point. My conduct reveals the genuineness of my salvation and evidences my appreciation for what God has done to save us. And as His children, we stand at the end of the day not before the mirror of self-judgment, we stand before God's assessment. That thought should fill us with reverential awe. God assesses my standing before Him. God assesses my deeds and my actions and my thoughts. The lifestyle evidences, should evidence a healthy fear of this judgment. What does God think of you? What does He think of how you live? Consider this question, and every day of your exile in this world should then be lived with a reverence for God, not a debilitating fear if we have come to trust in Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice, but a liberating fear that quenches lower, lesser fears, especially the fear of man. This is the kind of fear that produces courage and perseverance, the backbone to withstand moral opposition, even persecution. Now, everything that follows from verses 18 to 21, in verses 18 to 21, is subordinate to this main idea of living in the fear of God. What follows provides further motivation, then, for fearing the Lord. It's qualification. Let's consider it. We'll do it very ra fairly rapidly. But he says, fear the Lord, who is your judge, verse 18, knowing this, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We should fear God and reverence Him in our daily conduct, aware that He ransomed us from sin and purchased us with Christ's blood. That is a serious thought. There are entailments to such a relationship. This is stunning grace. And we will respond a certain way if we really grasp what, what God has done for us in Christ. Redeeming us with the precious blood of Christ. Negatively, God bought us out of the marketplace of sin, we read here in verse 18. 
Negatively, He delivered us from the futile way of life unbelievers passed down from one generation to another. Strong indication that some of the readers at least are Gentiles. One generation shackles the next to its sinful ways and it's like a long chain gang. But Christ comes along and ransoms us. This is the kind of fear that produces courage because it sees what Christ has done to deliver us. Jesus, the flawless, morally perfect substitution sacrifice, died in my place to pay my ransom, to liberate me from this chain gang of sin. And I'm released. How can I really come to terms with that and not live in reverence toward God? How can I believe that and not be affected by the way that I live? Now concerning our Savior, Peter now adds further motivation to live in reverent fear at verse 20. He, this Savior, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus was foreknown. That is, I think His work of redemption was determined by God prior to creation. Putting that together means God permitted sin to be. He foreknew Christ as Savior prior to creation. You don't need a Savior where there's not sin. But the main point here is that God chose to reveal Himself in the person of the eternal Son. Did you see that phrase? For your sake. Now this connects to what we looked at last week in verses 10 through 12. We are in a highly privileged position on this side of the cross. The prophets work to understand what we now receive and understand. That Christ has been sent fulfilling prophecy and paying the penalty of our sin. We know now what the sufferings of Christ mean. We know now what the, what the glories of Christ mean. We have more to figure out, but we know a lot of it. He's risen from the dead. He has ascended and He reigns today from heaven's throne. When we grasp this, we live in reverential fear of God. I mean, think of it. This is for our sake, for our benefit. Jesus is the perfect, all-knowing, never-to-be-fooled judge of how I live my daily life. And He is the one who's rescued me from sin. People may criticize me, they may judge me, they may condemn me, but Jesus knows the truth. People may commend me. They may see me as righteous. But Jesus knows the truth. In the ethical decisions that we make every day, in the challenge to rightly live in the world but not be part of it, as we strive to determine right from wrong, we must pause and remember that God is our impartial judge. May we fear Him. With reverential awe, Fear this one who has sent his son to deliver us from sin. That's how you live. A couple covenants with one another in marriage, and they realize as they do so, if all is right and it's a right wedding, they realize there are entailments here. There are future implications and organic consequences that involve certain responsibilities, and no one's ready to stand in marriage before they understand that. 
But when, now think of it, when that couple exchanges vows and is declared to be husband and wife, those entailments are joyful prospects, are they not? They're joyful prospects. If this couple loves God, they respond with enthusiasm to the consequences and the results of such a marriage. They enter upon their new life with joy. They do not begrudge one another these responsibilities and privileges these far-reaching consequences. Or to shift the picture, a teenager who earns his or her driving license rejoices to take on the responsibilities of driving. There's clearly entailments when you drive out of that place and you've got your license, but they're thrilled with the opportunity to now drive and take on that responsibility. Sometimes that responsibility becomes hard, like Telling dad that you back the car into a pole. That's not fun, but it's part of it. But you take that on and you say, okay, I have this freedom. These entailments are natural consequences of the privileged position that we enter into, and they should be seen as joy. In a much fuller sense, with a salvation that is guarded by God, not by our performance, thankfully. We're not to be so overwhelmed by the grace and power of God that, with, that we just run away from Him, but rather that we reverence Him, that we brokenheartedly, with humility, rejoice to respond. This is what He has done. This is how I will respond. Hope. I'll set my hope on the grace that is to come with Christ's revelation. I will pursue a life of holiness in conformity to the holy nature of the God who has saved me. And I will walk in reverent fear, never forgetful that it's the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for my redemption. Nothing less. I may speak to some here today who the only honorable response to this message is for you to repent, to turn from your sin, and to trust God for your salvation. It would be the height of arrogance to think you do not need to be saved. You need to be delivered. You may find yourself even wanting to believe but struggling to do so. Here's the key. Here's what it comes down to. Turn from your sin, your own self-centered way of taking care of yourself and working to get God to commend you in your own efforts. And place your trust in Jesus dying to pay the penalty of your sin and rising in victory over the grave. Put your confidence and your hope there and receive from Him the gift of washing, of cleansing from your sin. That's where your hope is. Turn to Him in faith. For those of us who have been born anew, we know that the Spirit of God has come to dwell within us. We know the sense of our sin we're so aware of it, but we also know that we've been washed. We know that the Spirit of God has come to dwell within us. How privileged we are. 
let's know that there are entailments. There are necessary consequences and vital responsibilities which follow. And when we think on these words, hope, holiness, reverent fear, we've got work to do, don't we? There's patterns of life, there's thoughts, there's orientations, there's self-centered ideas that need to be rooted out of our lives and for us to respond joyfully to our high calling in Christ. And so let's pray for one another. Let's talk with one another in our home groups, even this afternoon and evening, and work these things out to the glory of God. How does this look in real life? Hope, holiness, reverent fear. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. We acknowledge, Lord, that this call is a call to beauty, to a life of wonder and grace. We acknowledge as well that we fall very far short of it in our own strength. We need your help. We need your aid. And we pour out our prayers for one another here and ask that you would make us a hope-filled, holy, God-honoring people. Bring to salvation anyone who has not come to that place of genuine trust in Christ as Savior, who's relying on a thousand other things to supplement what Jesus has done or to replace and substitute for what Jesus has done. I pray that you'd bring them out of that darkness and that futility of mind. And I pray in behalf of those of us who have come to that place of the new birth. And I pray, God, that you would conform us and mold us into the likeness of who you are, into the likeness of your eternal Son, that we would grow. Work in our home groups to this end today. Work in our gatherings in the days ahead. Work in the interaction that we have with one another on a fairly mundane level in day-to-day life. Do this work in us, we pray. Hear our cry. Make us the people that you want us to be. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.